Happy Labor Day. I am delighted to be here laboring among you this morning. Uh, I'm less excited about the fact that I have to follow Joe Novenson. Uh, I suspect many of you were here in chapel on Friday. I felt myself really torn this weekend. Part of me wanted for you to forget everything that Joe Novenson said so that I wouldn't have to follow in his footsteps. Uh, I did not pray that. I hope you remember everything that Joe Nevinson had to say, to say on Friday. Uh, before I begin to speak this morning, I would like for you guys to watch a short video clip with me. He says this must be a fashionable fight. It's drawn the finest people. Where is thy salute? For presenting yourselves on this battlefield. I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. <laughs> oh, the English are too many. seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. <laughs> I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as three men. And three men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Right? Against that? No! We will run! And we will live. Aye. Fight and you may die. Run. You'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! That's a fun clip. It kind of makes me want to run down to Scotland Yard, but there's no soccer game right now. So, um, they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Uh, how many of you want to be free? Uh, the Scots love freedom. 
Uh, we enjoy freedom here in America. Um, tell me if this sounds familiar to you guys. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's the Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, or tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to, be, to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's uh, Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus at the Foot of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, we are all about freedom in America. It feels like, it seems like a universal good. Uh, and in our society, 21st century America, we have a, partic a particular bias toward individual freedom, the freedom that we believe every person should enjoy to be able to think, to speak, to act as he or she pleases. We, we cherish this concept in America, uh, the idea that so long as they aren't hurting anyone, people should be allowed to do whatever they want. Um, if you were to search for freedom uh, on Google, which I have done, Google defines freedom as the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Um, Webster's Dictionary defines freedom as the absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action. These definitions are okay in a sense, particularly as they apply to political realities, but there's another way to think about or define freedom. Um, I was prompted to think again about that other perspective on freedom, uh, about the differing nature of freedom as it pertains to more fundamental human realities when I reread Tim Keller's book, uh, The Reason for God, this past summer. In that, in that book, uh, Keller makes this statement. Freedom cannot be defined in strictly negative terms as the absence of confinement and constraint, which is exactly how Google and Webster's defined it. In fact, in many cases, confinement and constraint is actually a means to liberation. Constraint as a means to liberation. Uh, that doesn't sound right, or at least it sounds counterintuitive if it's not just wrong. Uh, well, let me give a couple examples to illustrate. Uh, how many of you play a musical instrument or have tried to play music? Like almost everyone has at least tried to play a musical instrument. Um, if you like music when you're a kid, uh, you might try to learn an instrument, right? And so uh, in my case, that was piano. Um, and I practiced and practiced and practiced for years trying to learn to play the piano. Um, and for any of you who have done that, you know that there will be other things that you do not do because you are practicing piano. Um, and if you have some innate musical ability, uh, your submission to the discipline of practice, your submission to those limitations or those constraints that are imposed upon you in practice will result in the blossoming of an ability that otherwise would have gone untapped. And in that scenario, you've given up freedom to do some things in order to discipline yourself in a way that actually opens up to you a richer kind of freedom, uh, which then allows you to accomplish other things you couldn't have accomplished uh, before. Um, you might have the freedom now, if you practiced, to sit at the piano in the Great Hall and play Bach or Mozart or Rachmaninoff or Gershwin or Coldplay or the Avett Brothers, whatever it might be, because of the constraints you placed on yourself, because of the disciplines or practices you submitted to in the past. Um, or to give another example, um, how many of you play or have played a sport? Right? Almost everyone has tried to, to play a sport. Um, you know the same principle applies there, right? Um, you give up freedom 
You discipline yourself. You set limitations and constraints on yourself in the form of the drills you do over and over and over again. And if you have some athletic ability, um, doing so releases you into a richer freedom than you enjoyed before. I mean, think, think about the kind of freedom that Steph Curry enjoys on a basketball court because of years and years of practice, uh, because of the ritual of going to the gym and shooting probably hundreds of thousands, who knows, maybe millions of jump shots, he now enjoys the freedom of being able to pull up from almost anywhere inside of midcourt and have a 43.6% chance of making the shot. It is almost James Mitchell-like what he can do. For those of you who haven't been to a Covenant basketball game, you'll have to come and watch this year. Uh, One last example. Uh, If you want to read scripture in French, Uh, at convocation like Professor Beck did a couple of weeks ago, you have to submit yourself to routine practice until the shaping of those words in your mouth becomes second nature. And you'll probably love French more at that point than you did when you first submitted yourself to the discipline of learning vocabulary and verb conjugations and learning grammar and that sort of thing. Um, I I hope you're getting the point, right? Constraints can be liberating in the sense that they can lead to a richer freedom than we could enjoy without them. Now, it's probably worth noting that not every constraint is liberating. Um, Keller also points this out. He says, quote, disciplines and constraints liberate us when they fit with the reality of our nature and capacities. Um, So, for example, it does not matter how hard uh, I train to become an Olympic sprinter, how much I practice, how diligently I discipline myself. Um, I will not be challenging Usain Bolt in the 100-meter dash or Will Bryan in the 200. Um, Nevertheless, the point stands that freedom for us doesn't simply mean the absence of restrictions. It means finding the right restrictions or constraints and then growing within them. Um, In this sense, we're sort of like a fish in water. Um, A fish may yearn to be free of water, uh, but as you know, a fish that is free of water uh, isn't really free. It's dead. Um, Water, in a a very real sense, is a constraint. but it's a constraint that allows a fish to enjoy the freedom for which it was made. Uh, In the same way that the fullest freedom requires restriction, uh, so too does love. Keller points out, quote, if you want the freedoms of love, the fulfillment, security, sense of worth that it brings, you must limit your freedom in many ways. And then he writes that, Love is the most liberating freedom loss of all. Now, I suspect that might be fairly obvious. Uh, makes probably makes a lot of sense to you. If you want to be in a deep relationship with your family or your friends or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or your spouse, you can't simply make unilateral decisions um, or grant the other party no say at all in how the relationship operates or how you live your life. You have to give up some personal autonomy in order to experience love and the freedom and joy and delight that come with it. Um, This reality that love entails constraints is an especially important one for us to wrestle with, given that love is central to our being as those who bear the image of the triune God. Um, The God in whose image we're made tells us that he is love. Um, We know that perfect love has existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. We also know that out of his great love for us, Jesus Christ took on flesh, took on the constraints and the limitations that come with being human, 
in order to redeem us from our sin and to make all things new. You're no doubt familiar with what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus accepted constraints, uh, limitations, out of love for us. Uh, The biblical centrality of love, or or the affective dimension of the human person, um, is echoed by Christian writers throughout the history of the church. Uh, Perhaps the most famous of Christian theologians to speak to the importance of this dimension of the human person uh, was the great North African bishop, uh, St. Augustine. Uh, In his confessions, his spiritual autobiography, which if you haven't read it yet, you really should, um, he describes love as being like gravity. Here's what Augustine writes. A body, by its weight, tends to move toward its proper place. The weight's movement is not necessarily downwards, but to its appropriate position. Fire tends to move upwards. A stone, downwards. They are acted on by their respective weights. They seek their own place. Oil poured underwater is drawn up to the surface on top of the water. Water poured on top of oil sinks below the oil. They are acted on by their respective densities. They seek their own place. Things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. Then he goes on to write, My weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. It's with that sort of anthropology, that view of the human person in mind, with our loves or desires being central driving forces in our lives, that Augustine famously wrote at the beginning of the Confessions in the, in the context of a prayer, a line that's probably familiar to many of you. He's praying to God and he says, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Uh, scripture, the Christian tradition, make clear that we're loving beings made in the image of God, And that one of our jobs is to rightly order our loves, uh, to direct them first toward God, to seek or long for him first in order that we might rest, and also towards his kingdom, toward a vision of the world functioning as it was intended to. As we love God and his kingdom, there will be constraints placed on us. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, that the love of Christ constrains or compels us. Uh, But as we rightly orient our loves, as we long for or desire the kingdom of God, the constraints placed on us by that love begin not to feel like constraints. Um, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who was the author of The Little Prince, illustrated this reality pretty well when he wrote uh, that, quote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Uh, The lesson is simple, right? When people desire or love the right things, uh, the work is easier and will be aimed in the right direction. So we're loving creatures uh, designed to love the one who first loved us, and love necessarily entails constraints or costs. Um, Loving God means we don't love other things, at least not in the same ultimate sense in which God is the one object worthy of our full and complete adoration. Um, If we love God, we're necessarily constrained Uh, from loving false gods or idols or our own pleasure, our own glory, our own comfort. Uh, We put him before our self-focused desires. We give ourselves wholly to him. Um, As Martin Luther once said, uh, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. 
We long for the kingdom that God promises and that he will usher in. A world in which every wrong is made right, in which things are as they ought to be and are no longer marred by the effects of our sin. And it's in this vein that Augustine wrote in one of his sermons that the whole life of a good Christian is a holy longing. It's the same word we could translate that desire or love. That is our life, to be trained by longing. And our training through the holy longing advances in the measure that our longings are severed from the love of this world. We should not be surprised when there are constraints associated with our love for God, nor should we be surprised that there are costs. Um, There always are with love. Uh, C.S. Lewis reminds us of this truth in a famous passage uh, from his book, The Four Loves, when he writes, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be be broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But there is a wonderful reality to the constraints that are associated with love, and I've I've already hinted at it. Um, Those same constraints that are placed on us by love and that can feel so costly, uh, the loss of a freedom, uh, the restriction placed on time or activity, um, those not only exist as a consequence of love, that is because you love, you are constrained, uh, but they also serve as fuel and guide for love. Uh, Because you constrain yourself in certain ways, um, your love grows in a particular direction with increasing intensity. Uh, So to explain that concept a little more fully, I need to dip back into some philosophical anthropology for just a moment. Uh, I mentioned already that Scripture talks about the importance of the heart and of loving God, and that Christian thinkers like Augustine have perpetuated this understanding of human persons as inherently affective beings, um, that is, as lovers. Human beings are lovers. And this view of human, the human person lost traction in, within the Protestant tradition at some point in the modern era. Um, I'll let the folks in the philosophy department uh, render judgment on exactly when it happened. Um, but views that saw human beings primarily as uh, thinking persons or believing persons gained prominence um, in our tradition. Uh, how many of you have heard uh, Rene Descartes' famous saying, uh, cogito ergo sum? That sounds familiar, right? I think, therefore I am. Um, Those who followed in Descartes' footsteps saw human beings as essentially rational creatures. That was the defining characteristic of human beings. Um, They would say that we are what we think. Um, Any of you heard St. Anselm's famous phrase, uh, credo ut intelligam, uh, I believe in order that I I might understand. Um, Those who follow in that line of thinking Uh, tend to treat human beings as essentially believing creatures. Uh, They would say that we are what we believe. Um, That is, what we take on faith as our starting point, or our presuppositions, defines who we are. Now, in recent years, some Christians have argued that uh, rather than fundamentally thinking or believing beings, humans are essentially loving beings. Uh, So they would would say that they're simply recovering this ancient Augustinian tradition. Um, One proponent of this view is a a gentleman named James K.A. Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at Calvin College. He's been to speak here on campus before. Um, He cheekily pointed out in one of his books that when Augustine wrote, uh, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you, that Augustine did not say, you have made us to know you and our minds are ignorant until they understand you. Uh, Augustine very intentionally adopted an affective view of the human person. Um, And there's a really interesting debate to be had about all that. 
Um, I tend to think that we're in trouble if we reduce uh, human, the human person to any one of those dimensions, the rational or the presuppositional or the affective. Uh, I do think it's likely that we've given short shrift in our tradition to the affective dimension of the human person. Um, but I don't think this is an either-or situation. I think it's a both-and. Uh, if we're truly loving beings as those created in the image of God, um, not to say that we aren't rational or we aren't believing, uh, but if being a lover is an essential aspect of our core being, then how do we go about directing our loves in the right way? Um, how do we ensure that our loves are properly ordered? Well, one of the real contributions of the folks um, like Professor Smith of Calvin uh, and others is that they've highlighted the connection between habits, uh, practices, rituals, routines, and the formation of loves and desires. Uh, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, Smith describes habits as love's fulcrum. Um, as the leverage point for moving desires. Uh, to put it another way, habits or practices or rituals or routines are the constraints by which we shape and direct the loves of our heart. Um, or to state it yet another way, the activities we participate in on a regular basis have the power to influence and form the way we feel and what we love. Um, this view of how our loves or how our affections work is supported by the work of both believing and non-believing scholars. To give just one example, uh, Timothy Wilson, who holds the Cheryl J. Ashton Chair in Psychology at the University of Virginia, uh, states in his book, which is called Strangers to Ourselves, Discovering the Adaptive Unconscious, that one of the most enduring lessons of social psychology is that behavior change often precedes changes in attitudes and feelings. Behavior change often precedes changes in attitudes and feelings. Uh, often what you do changes how you feel and what you love. Uh, as Smith describes this reality, routine behaviors habituate us to a certain way of thinking about and living in the world, a way that has a particular understanding of the nature of the world and that looks forward to a particular vision of the way the world ought to be. Um, habits or practices remind us of the nature of reality, of who we are, uh, of where we're going. Uh, and in so doing, they incline us toward that kingdom whose coming we anticipate. Uh, the, the formative nature of rituals and practices can work in both positive and negative directions. Um, Smith points out in another of his books entitled You Are What You Love that we do not become consumerists uh, because we accept an argument in favor of consumerism. Um, do any of, of you know anyone who could honestly say, um, yeah, I sat down and I read a treatise on the consumption of material goods without any regard to the uh, impact, on, uh, impact of that approach on me or others around me, and I thought, now there's a good philosophy of life. That's, that's not how we become consumerists, right? Well, we become consumerists because we're formed by cultural practices that orient us uh, toward a consumerist vision of the good life. Um, Smith has a great story in one of his books about uh, reading Wendell Berry and really getting excited about Wendell Berry's vision for agriculture uh, and non-corporate farming um, and all those sorts of things, and then suddenly uh, coming to the realization that he was sitting in the food court at a Costco, and that there was a tremendous irony about these ideas that he was having in his head and the habits that, he, that had been formed or fashioned in his life. That same formative power or ritual of the same form of power of rituals um, or practices can be observed across a wide array of 
potential loves um, from nationalism, the patriotic rituals uh, that we might participate in that are intended to shape our loves with regard to our home country, um, to college football, the rituals that we participate in surrounding college football that might strengthen our love for our favorite team, uh, even to date night with a significant other, uh, a practice or a ritual that strengthens our love for that person. Um, and I want to say parenthetically, I'm not against patriotic rituals or sports rituals, um, but I do want us all to think about uh, and be aware of how those practices can shape uh, the loves of our hearts, and we need to participate circumspectly. Um, this formative power of habits and rituals and practices is a key element of Christian discipleship. Uh, it's not contrary to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a means by which the Holy Spirit works in our lives, uh, takes advantage of the way that the Father created us. Uh, Smith says, quote, discipleship is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his. Uh, when we're being discipled, uh, we're literally being disciplined. Uh, we're being trained in much the same way that a professional musician or a professional athlete uh, is trained. We're adopting and incorporating habits uh, into our lives that are designed to remind us of the truth uh, and point us toward a vision of the good life, of, of the world as it ought to be. Um, and I'll, I'll quote Smith one more time. Uh, he writes, Discipleship is a rehabituation of your loves. We need to regularly calibrate our hearts, turning them to be directed to the Creator, our magnetic north. Uh, through intentional habits or practices, um, we come to long even more for our Savior and for the coming of his kingdom. Uh, when we pray and read scripture on our own or with our halls, uh, when we come to chapel, uh, when we attend worship in a local church, uh, when we regularly serve in mercy ministry in the community, uh, when we sing together about the coming kingdom, when we recite scripture together, when we pray together, um, we are doing the work of shaping and fueling our love for our Creator and His kingdom. Um, so let me summarize uh, and wrap up uh, with this. Um, the richest freedom depends on constraints. Uh, and so too, true love involves constraints. It's costly. Uh, it involves sacrifice and self-denial. Um, but the constraints that can seem costly also serve to fuel and direct the loves of our heart. Um, when we engage in thoughtful practices, when we develop intentional habits, when we participate in purposeful rituals that point our hearts toward our Creator and Redeemer, uh, the Sovereign Lord of the universe, and toward the kingdom that He is ushering in, uh, the world the way it's supposed to be, we will grow to love God more and more and to rightly love those around us uh, and to rightly love the world in which we live. Uh, the constraints imposed on us by the love of Christ allow us, uh, help us, to love more fully and to love as we ought. They aim our loves in the right direction and they help to fuel them. Uh, just as a fish swims free in the constraints provided by water, uh, so, too we, so too we love most fully and enjoy the richest freedom when we're constrained and compelled by the love of Christ. So as you enter into a new academic year, um, I would encourage you to give some attention to your routines, to the things that you do habitually, to the practices or the rituals that you engage in. Uh, give some careful thought to those. Consider how they might be shaping the loves of your heart.
uh, for as Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love. We give thanks for creating us in your image as lovers. We pray that you would help us uh, to guard our hearts, to give attention to the ways in which our practices, our habits might be shaping uh, the loves of our heart. Father, we desire to be faithful to you, uh, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So help us to be purposeful and intentional in the way that we live, uh, that through uh, our everyday practices and habits and routines and rituals, our heart might be directed toward you and toward your kingdom, uh, for which we long, Father. Uh, we thank you for the love of Christ made manifest in his willingness to take on the limitations and the constraints of human form and even uh, to go to the cross on our behalf. Uh, renew us in him this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.